So it's a great pleasure this evening to welcome my um, beloved Dharma friend, sister, colleague, um, uh, esteemed colleague, <laughs> uh, Sharon Salzberg here. Um, when I first met Sharon Salzberg, which was in 1974, at Naropa Buddhist University, just when it was getting started the first summer with Ram Das and Chogyam Trumpa and others, she was just recently back from India. She was about 21 years old, um, and uh, she was um, innocent and luminous <laughs> and wise. Um, and she began to teach almost immediately with Joseph Goldstein and myself as colleagues. Um, and then we started together the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts the, the following year, um, which, like Spirit Rock, is one of the main meditation centers uh, in, in America. And as I believe it's Sharon's line, as she said, we did it all without adult supervision, <laughs> right? Um, and one of the really wonderful things about Sharon, and she's written a number of books about loving kindness and the, the path of the Dharma and this quite, um, I find, very moving and inspiring book on faith that's come out um, just in recent months. Um, she was really a kind of a counterpoint and counterbalance to the teachings that Joseph and I would do together because she reminded us of things like loving kindness when we would get off track and she her her honesty and 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 clarity of vision and a kind of wisdom that you just don't generally find in 21 year olds i don't know <laughs> it seemed like lifetimes of practice um, was really the balance that allowed this whole um, community and the development of insight meditation as we know it anyway in america um, to flower and blossom. I don't think really we could have done it. Um, it would have happened without Sharon as the kind of guiding feminine force. And um, So I'm really happy she's here. She teaches here periodically when she comes in the West Coast, but very rarely Monday night. So thank you for being here and coming. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> what a beautiful introduction. Thank you. Well, I'm really happy to be here. When Jack was first speaking, before we sat, I thought about the first time I ever saw Spirit Rock. Joseph and I were on our way to Burma, and Jack was exploring the possibility of buying this piece of land. And it, he wanted to show us every inch of land that was here, and it was pouring rain. It was just like pouring, torrential rain, like monsoon, and, and as we slogged along in the rain, I kept thinking, I'm on my way to Burma, I'm going to be so sick. <laughs> but it kind of didn't matter, <laughs> because Jack's um, incredible joy and sense of discovery and possibility, his enormous sense of possibility, carried us through that day, and I uh, kept thinking about it when I was in Burma sitting, I kept thinking about this land and, and Jack's vision and, and all that might be here. So it's, it's always incredible for me to come here and see, oh wow, you know, buildings. 
it's real. It happened because of the dedicated work of a lot of people. Actually, the line about no adult supervision was not originally my own. At the end of the three-month retreat we have in Barry every year, when we had a kind of circle sharing, somebody said, the thing that amazes me so much about IMS, the, the center there, is that it was originated and uh, grew up and is so successful without any adult supervision whatsoever. And it struck a chord. <laughs> it was like, yeah, doesn't it feel that way? But we do the best we can, <laughs> moment by moment, uh, which is in a way what I wanted to speak about tonight. I just came from Los Angeles, where just coincidentally, a friend of mine from New York City was there. She was receiving an award uh, from a, a county human relations commission, Los Angeles County, for co-creating these PSAs, the public service announcements, both on radio and television after September 11th. They were about anti-hate crime PSAs. And she got quite a number of celebrities to uh, be part of this. So the, the county wanted to give her an award. It was a courage award. And I, since I happened to be in town, I went to the, the award ceremony. And it was amazing when she actually spoke. She was very, very, very nervous. She said, I'm probably going to have to breathe into a paper bag after this, but um, it was extraordinary what she actually said. She lives very close to what was the World Trade Center, very close. And on September 11th, she was home and refused all efforts to evacuate because she said she was standing on her um, deck watching person after person jump and die or cling to ledges. And she said she couldn't leave because she felt that she had to pray for every one of them. She couldn't leave. She's a very kind of delicate person. And I, I said to somebody who's a mutual friend, I said, why did it have to be her? You know, why couldn't it have been somebody really like robust, you know, and, and strong? And he said, because they needed to be prayed for. And she, she wouldn't leave. She couldn't leave. She said, as she was giving this talk, she couldn't leave because she felt she wanted each of them to know they were not alone. And then she said, from that day onwards, she has never stopped reflecting on what does it mean to have a life? What does it mean to be alive? I mean, here we are. What an extraordinary thing. It's so fragile. It's so precarious. Look how we started this evening. It's so enormous. What does it mean to have a life? From the Buddhist point of view, of course, what it means to have a life is that we have tremendous capacity within us, all of us, no matter what we think of ourselves. We have a, a capacity for love, for compassion, for connection, for understanding, for change, for growth, for freedom. That's what it means to have a life. That we don't just go mechanically through the actions of a day without, without a context of meaning, which is that connection to all of that possibility 
What does it mean to, to each of us, to any of us, to have a life? You know how we can spend the day, so much of the time, in a state of kind of deficit or deficiency, like we have to acquire, we have to get things and experiences and objects and people and acclaim so that we feel better about ourselves? There's a store, I don't know if it's anywhere but in New York City, but it's in several sites in New York City. It's called Kate's Papari, and it's this fabulous paper goods store. Everything inside is made of paper. Everything from like wrapping paper to lanterns to notebooks, and it's just extraordinary. And the first time I ever went there, a friend brought me there. We were standing on the threshold, and just at that moment she turned to me and said, this store is going to satisfy all of your paper needs. (laughs) And I looked at her and I said, I don't have any paper needs. (laughs) But within two minutes of being in the store, I felt like I needed everything. (laughs) I just didn't know how I would survive without every single thing in the store. And I actually just had a flashback that I went upstairs to get a copy of my book for somebody. And, and... It's extraordinary upstairs, you know, there's like all this stuff for sale. And I looked around and I I caught sight of a crystal mala, you know, uh, one of these things. And and I saw it and I said, I need that. And I thought, what do I need that for? (laughs) I don't need that, but I wanted it. (laughs) You know, it's just like amazing how we can be, just that sense of deficiency, that we do not have enough, we are not enough, we have to get, we have to cling in order to feel better. The premise of meditation practice, actually, is that we can turn that right around. We don't practice in that state from that motivation, that we're not good enough and somehow we have to get enough triumphant, fantastic, glorious experiences to disguise that not good enough from ourselves and from the world. We practice from a sense of inner abundance, that each of us, no matter who we are, no matter what we've been through, no matter what we're afraid of, if we get underneath those habits and underneath those fears, we will find within us those capacities that the Buddha was talking about to connect, to care, to open, to be aware, to be mindful. That is, is just part of who we are. It's innate to our being. So we practice, it's funny, you know, it's so easy to bring all of our old conditioning into, of course, everything that we do, including our meditation practice. It's so easy. And yet the radical transformation of the practice is not in accumulating different experiences, but in learning how to let go, learning how to forgive ourselves, learning how to let be. One of the fundamental practices that we do, of course, is sitting down and feeling the breath. When I first went to India, I was, um, I'd been a student at the State University of New York at Buffalo, which had a program where you could create a kind of independent study project. And if it was accepted, you could go anywhere in the world for a year, the theory being that you'd come back for your final year and do a kind of cross-cultural study. And I had taken a course in Buddhism which was extraordinary for me. It was just part of this Asian philosophy course. But it opened a door that 
I mean, I can't even find the words for how much it meant. You know, there were two aspects probably of the Buddha's teaching that were most significant. One was his very open, frank, unashamed, unadorned comment that there is suffering in life. Now, I, like many people, had had a family background which was um, full of loss and pain and confusion. And like many people, this was never spoken about. And so I didn't know what to do with all of those feelings. I didn't know where to place all of that pain. And here was the Buddha, unlike anyone I'd ever met, saying, guess what? This is a part of the truth of things. We need to acknowledge this. We need to open to this. And the other thing was his completely inclusive invitation to come to the end of suffering. Wasn't that that possibility for freedom was for those special people over there, somewhere else, in a long-ago time, in a faraway place, or anywhere other than Buffalo, whatever it might have been, that one could conjecture. But really, that invitation is for everybody, because everybody, according to that point of view, has the same capacity based on on those two really revolutionary concepts for me, I created an independent study project to go to India and study Buddhist meditation, which got accepted. Every once in a while when I I think about that and I think about sharing of the merit, which Ajahn Amaro led earlier, I think, you know, I should really share my merit with that whole department, you know, which got me going with my student loans off to India. I also had a lot of along with my yearning and very strong intention, I had a lot of kind of fanciful ideas about the, the magic, esoteric, supernatural, extraordinary meditation technique that I would be given that would turn my life around. And it took me about three months of wandering around India to find a teacher who would teach a, a direct practice which is what I was looking for. I wasn't really interested in so much the philosophical tenets of Buddhism. I was interested in a meditation practice. I finally found the situation, this man named Essen Goenka, many of you might know, who was teaching an intensive 10-day retreat, which I entered never having meditated for even one minute before. (laughs) Just the way we used to do things, you know? It's like, now it's different. And much to my shock, the very first instruction he gave was, sit down and feel your breath. And I thought, you know, feel my breath. I could have stayed in Buffalo to feel my breath, you know. Where's that special, fantastic, extraordinary technique that's going to change my life? And and I thought, well, you know, he's speaking in public. He's got to say something. And I am a beginner. I've never done this before. So what will happen is I'll do this for a while, and then I'll have this incredible breakthrough, which will be obvious to everybody, especially to him. And at that point, he'll take me aside into the other room, and he'll give me the real thing. So I practiced and practiced and practiced, and it's been over 30 years. And strangely enough, when I go to sit in that school, in that lineage, it's exactly the same instruction. It hasn't changed at all. It's that simple, direct encouragement to come into the moment, get in touch with yourself, 
let go of distractions and see what happens. I once, actually I was in California another time, I told that story and somebody in the group called out, well maybe everyone else you started with has moved on, you know, and, <laughs> and they've all gotten the real instruction and you're the one who's like so dumb, you know, you're still being told to feel your breath. And every once in a while I ask people I started with, many of whom I still know, you know. Mm. But it's also true that it's not so easy just to feel a breath. Because we can have that kind of mind like I was upstairs in that store. What can we hold on to? What can we grab onto to feel better about ourselves? We might think that the goal is to squeeze our attention tight down upon the breath, to demand that our minds don't wander. But sadly enough, if we do that, our minds wander even more. The revolution in practice is to realize that it's not about relating to ourselves in the same old ways. Say we're sitting with the intention to feel the breath. Most likely, it's not too many breaths before our minds leap back into the past and we're thinking about some situation where we didn't have much courage ourselves and we didn't speak forth when maybe we really should have and we're filled with regret. Or our minds jump forward into the future and we create an entire world which has not happened and may never happen. And then we wake up and we think, oh, breath. (laughs) That really is the critical moment in practice because in that moment, instead of chastising ourselves and berating ourselves and judging ourselves, we have a chance in that moment to be gentle, to have compassion, in effect, to forgive ourselves, to be able to let go, and to come back into the, what is really the fantastic truth that no matter what happens, we can always begin again. One of the things I love the most about meditation practice is that I find the enormous life lessons are contained in itty-bitty little packages like that. You might think, well, that's nothing, you know. You're with the breath, you're gone. You let go and you come back. But that's everything. Because if we can do that in that formal, rather stylized situation, what we are learning in our innermost being, really in ourselves, is that we can make a mistake and start again. We can lose sight of our aspiration and start again. We can deviate from our chosen course and we can start again. We can always begin again. That's the kind of revolution of consciousness that meditation is. It's a direct challenge to those feelings of being deficient and a continual reminder that we can turn that around. That really is, it's like that's the trajectory of the journey of the spiritual journey. It's certainly the trajectory of the journey of faith. The subtitle of my book is called Trusting Your Own Deepest Experience. So it became Faith, Trusting Your Own Deepest Experience. And in some ways it was a good subtitle, I think, because um, it kind of tweaks the word faith. We don't often think of faith in terms of trusting our own deepest experience. And in fact, when I first started speaking about faith, and saying I wanted to write a book on faith, which was about five years ago, 
I was met with a lot of reactions like anger and disbelief and amusement and um, derision and all kinds of things because people associated the word faith not at all with trusting their own deepest experience but with a loss of self-respect and just completely submitting to the vision of truth of another, a person or a tradition or whatever. But I wanted to help reclaim the word so that it didn't only have those fearful and negative associations, to experience it as a liberating quality of being able to go forth, looking for a greater sense of connection, not being defined by the circumstances in which we find ourselves, looking for a bigger picture. That really is the the essence of faith, as I was trying to convey it. The problem with the subtitle, one problem with the subtitle, is that trusting your own deepest experience can also seem kind of pompous, you know, like, well, I have a deepest, deep experience and you don't. But what I really believe is that when we get deepest, when we get that far into a space of stillness and clarity and understanding, what we find is not ourselves in that kind of separate sense of being great, but we really all find one another. We find a picture of life in which we are inextricably interconnected. So trusting our own deepest experience is like trusting that capacity which we all share. I actually wanted the subtitle of the book to be um, The Journey from Lucy to Lala, and this is why. Early on in the book, I talk about this time when Uh, Joseph and I actually and some friends were moving into a house that someone had rented for us to do a retreat in. And when I went into the bedroom that had been set aside for me, I saw that someone had left on the desk a comic strip from the Peanuts cartoons. In the first frame of the strip, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown, and she says... You know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is? The problem with you is that you're you. (laughs) And then in the second frame, poor Charlie Brown looks at her and says, well, what in the world can I do about that? (laughs) In the third and final frame, Lucy, that Lucy says, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. And somehow, whenever I was doing walking meditation by that desk, my eye would fall on that line. The problem with you is that you're you. And that resonated very deeply as an echo of times past when the Lucy voice, so to speak, was the most dominant voice in my inner world. And for many of us, that is the case. The problem with you is that you're you. If you really knew who you were, like poor Charlie Brown, probably suspected his entire existence, it would be a problem. It would be pretty unpleasant. So contrast that to the Buddha's expression of possibility, where he says that no matter who you are, no matter what pain you've been through, no matter how how unloved you may have been, no matter how unlovable you may feel, Underneath all of that, no matter what, are these same potentials. That's what it means to have a life. 
That's what it means to be a human being. The classical translation uh, from Pali, the word sada, uh, normally translated as faith, means to offer one's heart, to be able to place our hearts with someone, with something, with a sense of truth. And to, to do that, I feel, means we have certain realizations. It's based on certain realizations. One is the realization that we have a heart. And the other is that our hearts are worth something. That it's no small thing to give over our hearts, our energy, our enthusiasm, our care, our love to something because given over with our hearts is our life's energy. And so we need discrimination and care and investigation and wondering about where that heart is going. But I found a a beautiful expression of that sense of knowing that in our deepest and truest nature we're worth something, we're of value in the poetry of Lala, who was a 14th century mystic from Kashmir named Lalded, or Lala is what she was known as. And that's why I wanted the subtitle of the book to be The Journey from Lucy to Lala. The epilogue actually is about Lala. And I thought I would just um, read this piece to you and then we could do some questions. Lala wrote, At the end of a crazy moon night, the love of God rose. I said, it's me, Lala. As if renewing her acquaintance with an old friend, Lala addresses her God casually, sweetly, intimately. Enchanted, I felt inspired by her winsome response, her calm expectation of being remembered. Hi, you remember me, don't you? Lala offers herself completely, no reticence due to feeling a lack of self-worth, no question of her absolute right to be there, face to face with the vastness of her ultimate truth. Without any doubt, the heart she brings is worthy. For a long time after discovering this poem, it was my touchstone. I wanted to be like Lala, close up to the truth of life. One day, faced with an urgent turning point in my life, that favorite line arose in my mind, transformed into a phrase that launched me from admiration of Lala to standing in her place. It was no longer it's me, Lala, but it's me, Sharon. It's me, Sharon, right up against the question of what it means to be alive and having to someday die. It's me, Sharon, part of a constantly changing reality, with all surety falling away. It's me, Sharon, not even one slight step removed from my own potential for love and awareness and my ability to realize them. It's me, Sharon, no longer appreciating from a distance Lala's upfront, textured, vibrant connection to her truth, but directly face-to-face with my own. Like Lala, we all have that absolute right to reach out without holding back toward what we care about more than anything. Whether we describe the recipient as God or a profound sense of indestructible love or the dream of a kinder world, it is in the act of offering our heart and faith that something in us transforms. What may have been merely a remote abstraction flames into life. It's me, Lala, becomes it's me, whoever we are, proclaiming that we no longer stand on the sidelines but are leaping directly into the center of our lives, our truth, our full potential. 
No one can take that leap for us, and no one has to. This is our journey of faith. So do you have any questions or comments, anything you'd like to talk about? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, people use the word faith in so many different ways, but there's something. Um... Could you all hear that? No? Uh, she was talking about uh, in a teaching she studied, and the most important thing being. Um, um, I'll paraphrase, or at least my understanding. It was almost like our willingness to have faith. Our, our will is the word she used, but I'll change that to willingness um, to open, to take the next step, to, um, to see what happens in a way. And, and I think that's true. Um, you know, rather than reifying faith as an object, as another thing we can get and have and compare, uh, really it, it means that kind of willingness to realize that we don't know what's going to happen. I mean... You know, we like to think we know what's going to happen this afternoon or tomorrow. We don't know. We absolutely don't know. And to understand that, to admit that, and to take the next step. Not feeling that what we do is ineffectual, but realizing that we are... It's like we're planting a seed. And the, the fruition of that seed is a mystery how it will unfold, when it will unfold. It's a mystery, but our work is to plant the seed. Otherwise, you know, we're constantly judging and assessing and criticizing ourselves, like what we're doing is not good enough, it's not important enough, our contribution isn't big enough, we're not making enough of a difference, you know, our practice isn't, isn't perfect, whatever it might be. I mean, when um, Shelley, who picked me up at the airport, was talking about Tony, who died, Tony, right? She said that he was the kind of person who, um, if a call went out from Spirit Rock for volunteers, instead of calling back to say, what do you need and how long will it take and what are you asking of me, he would just show up. And I thought, what an incredible thing to say about somebody, you know, that they would show up. And that there was that sense of giving, not, well, you know, I'm not talented enough and, you know... I can't really do it right, or all the kinds of things we might normally do, to actually just show up, and to show up for one moment, and then the next, and then the next. That's really how we do make a difference. And You know, I've traveled, since I was here in July, I've traveled around the country at least twice, maybe more, um, 
And the thing I get asked, because in speaking about faith, the thing I get asked more than anything now uh, is about that. You know, how can we have faith that we can make a difference? How can we have faith that anything we do is going to be impactful in this world? And, and I keep coming back to that sense of what's in front of me. You know, what, what is the good I can do, however small it seems, right now? Because that's real. Everything else is like a story that we tell ourselves or we tell the world. And I believe that's really how the world changes, is that incremental, moment by moment, not knowing where it's going to go, not feeling in control, still showing up. That's really what makes a difference. And in fact, it's the same thing in our meditation practice, which again is just, uh, it's like a fractal, you know, it's just a little replica of, of life itself. When we first opened um, the Insight Meditation Society, uh, Jack and Joseph and I and a group of friends, within a month we received two letters that were remarkable for how they were addressed. Instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, the first was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> and I used to like that one the best, really. I liked that a lot. I used to look at it and think, what were they thinking? You know? Like my mind went all the way to some kind of like dehydrated kit, you know, where you add water and you get instant meditation. But of course, I knew what they were thinking because it's what we all think, you know, is that. If something doesn't happen instantly, it's not worth it. It's not worth having. We need instant gratification. And the second letter was addressed to the hindsight meditation study. <laughs> and that is really my current favorite. It has been for a few years now. I really like that a lot. The hindsight meditation society. Where's Gina? Are you going to give me a hat that says the hindsight meditation society? <laughs> Um, I really do like it enormously because in my practice and in my life, there have been so many times when, say in my practice, I've done a, a period of practice thinking nothing is happening. Nothing is happening. I'm making no difference whatsoever to myself, to anybody else. Only to look back later in hindsight and say, well, look at that. You know, that period which I thought was nothing, worth nothing, really was an important building block for this other thing to happen. Or the kind of grating irritation of it really opened me in some way. It taught me something about patience that really proved important later on. Or, you know, sometimes in life, I try to do something to help somebody, and it seems like it has gone nowhere. And later on, I hear, if we're lucky, we hear, you know, and sometimes it happens. Well, you know, I couldn't take it in then, but it was important you said it because now it's combining with these other conditions in my life, and now I see things differently. Or, you know, it meant so much to me. I couldn't thank you at the time, but it really meant a lot to me that you showed up. Whatever it is, there's so many times when it's only in hindsight that 
we can look back and say, oh yeah, you know, that was really, that was really important. And so it's just kind of reinforced my, my, my allegiance to the Hindsight Meditation Society has kind of reinforced my appreciation of just doing the best you can with what's in front of you because that's what's real. The question was, I had talked about um, the implication, of, one implication of that subtitle perhaps could be being pompous when trusting your own deepest experience. But how about being afraid to trust your own deepest experience or afraid when trusting, when seeing your own deepest experience? To trust your own deepest experience. Well, I think that's extremely common. Um, you know, that's where uh, most of us begin. That's why Lucy is such a an archetype, um, I think it's almost inevitable, really, that we will be afraid to trust our own deepest experience. And then the question becomes not hating ourselves for the fear and, and creating an entire self-image, like, I'm such a frightened person, I always have been and I always will be, but to realize that that fear itself is a construct. It's something that's, that's born out of conditions, and that a good deal of meditation practice, in fact, just the sheer almost like skills training of meditation practice is learning how to deal with those kinds of hindrances, um, those elements of, of uh, fear and clinging and habits of mind that will inevitably arise. To be able to see the Lucy voice, for example, and not to freak out and just say, yeah, that's Lucy. You know, in fact, I have one other story of Lucy. Um, when I went to a, a Hatha Yoga center, because uh, my own teacher was teaching there, and I also had been invited to give a talk, which I really went was to do. The reason I really went was to do yoga with him, but I had to give this talk. And uh, I kind of had it in my mind that when I gave the talk, I would use that example of the comic strip in Lucy and Charlie Brown. So I spent the morning doing yoga, and um, we got to the place where my teacher said, okay, now we're going to do a wheel pose, and those of you who uh, don't do hatha yoga, you know, you lie down on your back in this pose, and you place your hands up near your ears, and somehow <laughs> you're supposed to hoist yourself up into this perfect arch, or any kind of arch <laughs> at all. <laughs> and... I'd never, ever been able to do that pose. And, and so he said, okay, now we're going to do wheel. I thought, yeah, right. You know, put my hands up near my ears and couldn't get up. And so he came over to me. We were quite close friends. And he came over to me and said, did you get up? And I said, I never get up. So he helped me up, and that was lovely. And, and then uh, he started talking, and I kept looking at my watch. And I thought, you know, God, I have to go get ready for my talk. And, you know, he, he'll surely never ask us to do another one. He's running late. And then he said, now we're going to do another one. I said, oh, God, you know. Lie down, put my hands by my ears, and then he said, I want you all to let go of all self limiting ideas about yourself. And I laughed and I went up. <laughs> and I was in such shock. I said, Oh my God, I'm up, out loud. <laughs> but then the very next thought that came up in my mind was, 
you'll never be able to do this again. <laughs> because I had the kind of Lucy, Charlie Brown thing in my mind, knowing I was going to use it in my talk, I saw that thought, you'll never be able to do this again, and I just said, chill out, Lucy. And that was it, like enjoy the moment. You know, let yourself enjoy it. That's not to say that the Lucy thought will not arise again and again and again and again. You don't deserve to be happy. You should be afraid of this. You know, you can't trust that. But knowing how to work with those thoughts so that we neither get submerged in them nor despise them and struggle against them, that really is the, it's like the nature of meditation practice almost is, is learning that skill. You know, then we can be free, even if Lucy visits a lot. Did you hear that? Um, good grief. <laughs> it's a great phrase. I mean, in, in many ways, you know, it's not a question of, of grief being good or bad. It's inevitable. It's like the human condition. You know, we experience loss and we mourn. Um, in some ways, for some people, grief is... Um, becomes the cause of feeling bitter and alone and isolated as though we were the only ones who, you know, who have lost, who've, who've been afflicted or who are in, in pain. And for other people at other times, uh, sometimes tremendous grief becomes the cause for tremendous love and compassion, a sense of connection. And that is something that's always fascinated me personally uh, because I experienced so much loss in my life, you know, and and to really try to discern what's the difference, you know, since um, there's a teaching in Buddhism that um, the proximate cause of the nearest arising condition um, for faith to arise is suffering. And I was dumbfounded by that, really. I thought, isn't that interesting, you know? Uh, isn't that perplexing? Because everybody suffers. It's not that there's anybody who does not experience some kind of suffering in life. And why is it that some come out, you know, with, with a state of, of greater connection and love and compassion and faith, and others do not? And in some ways that set me on the path to try to write the book. In fact, I was um, in one of my uh, many periods of struggle writing this book, I was talking to Susan Griffin, the writer, and she said... Um, uh, she said two things, actually, that were very profound for me. One was, you have to stop thinking of yourself as the person writing this book and think of yourself as the first person who gets to read this book. <laughs> and I thought, wow, isn't that true? And the other thing she said was, you know, a lot of people might assume that somebody writes a book on a topic like this because you know all about it and you want to impart your expertise. But the truth is probably you're writing this book because you need to explore the topic. 
and that writing is part of the exploration. And that is what I needed to explore. Like, what happens sometimes with, with grief and loss and sorrow and pain so that um, we feel them? It's not that we don't feel them, but uh, the end result is that, is that feeling of being part of a greater whole rather than feeling so alone and isolated. And one of the great models of my life was this woman, Deepama, who was one of our teachers and um, who'd experienced tremendous suffering in her life. She uh, lost two of her children and then her husband, very suddenly, her husband, very suddenly. And uh, she was so overcome uh, with grief that she was, she was living in Burma at the time. Her husband had been part of the civil service there. She just took to bed and, and she was completely incapable of, of taking care of her daughter, her remaining daughter or, or herself. And, and it being Burma, the doctor came to her and said, you're actually going to die of a broken heart unless you do something about your mind. You should learn how to meditate. And because I think primarily because she had a daughter still to take care of, she got out of bed. And she went to learn how to meditate. They said that she was so debilitated when she went, she was so weakened, that she actually had to crawl up the temple stairs to get into the meditation room to learn how to meditate. Um, and the end result of that meditation, as you know, I'm sure Jack has told lots of stories, people often do, because she was very important for all of us, was this incredible amount of love that she never seemed to meet anybody. And I saw her with a whole variety of different kinds of people. She never seemed to meet anybody that she was kind of cool to, you know, or, or a little bit um, distant from. It was like she welcomed in everybody into this field of love and compassion. And I think it was the depth of her sorrow that really taught her that we are all vulnerable, that we're not so different. You know, we all want to be happy. We all experience sorrow and pain. Let's use that understanding to come together, to take care of each other, you know, rather than uh, to be closed down by that truth. You know, so I think there's a lot of potential in that state. And since we experience it anyway, um, with all the accompanying sorrows of life, you know, really, let's use it. I, um, I appreciate what your title is of the book, because I've always had uh, trouble with that word, you know, and, and you were mentioning that a moment ago. And, and my experience has been that in, in my life growing up, Younger, when I was younger, I, um, I, I got <clears throat> kind of mixed up in a few religions that used that word in a way that was not real positive for me. And so, um, certainly watching TV and hearing, just hearing the context of that word in terms of religion was kind of frightening. And so, I, I really appreciate you know some of the things that you were reading out of your book. And, I was also uh, I got a newsletter from the IMS, and, um, and it was, there was a really interesting article in there. And 
one part of the psychiatrist quoted the Buddha as kind of saying about how the Buddha didn't really refer to Buddhism as a religion. You know, the Buddha also didn't want to be called a Buddhist. You know, it was just like I'm a person here, and you know, I I know how to become enlightened. I've become enlightened, and I can teach you this path. And if you want to do it, you know, I'm here. Uh-huh. I just, I like the simplicity of that. That really, you know, it was really a nice way to, uh, to hear that. So, I just kind of wanted to say that. Thank yeah, thank you. Did you hear that? Is there a no anywhere? The comment was about having a kind of negative, or several negative experiences uh, with faith and religion and the word faith um, earlier on. And so, uh, kind of being appreciative of of the essential Buddhist teaching, which is, in some ways, it's not really like a religion. It's, it's much more about a way of life. And the Buddha uh, is saying, you know, and we often say, as I think is true, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. He didn't call himself a Buddhist. Um, he taught the Dharma. He taught a way of life. And, and that is really in the... Uh, it has the air of an invitation. It's saying, you know, I did this. It freed me from suffering. Try it out. You know, see what happens. Put it into practice, which is the literal phrase. Put it into practice. See what happens. And so it's, um, it helps, you know, in, in terms of the uh, kind of very painful experiences a lot of people have with not trusting their own deepest experience and, and simply submitting to an external authority. So I know, I mean, a lot of times when I, I tell the story in the book, actually, when I first, the first time I ever taught a workshop in faith, um, I was in Los Angeles uh, teaching outside in this beautiful canyon, and I, um, I spoke all Saturday morning, and I kept asking for questions, and nobody had any questions. It was just this very uh, awful silence, and, which made me very uneasy. <laughs> um, and then the first thing after lunch... Uh, this guy who was sitting right in front, which happens to be right in front of the tape recorder, came bursting out with, I came to Buddhism to get away from all this shit. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is going to be trouble. <laughs> you know, and I've had that reaction many times. Um, but something in me just has wanted to, I think I want to have the conversation. You know, like, let's talk about this quality. What is it? You know, let, let's look at it rather than feeling like we can't, we can't claim it or some elements of it for ourselves. Well, yeah. 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 I feel a little shy to stand up again, but I'm doing it. <laughs> um, I love that
they did that because of the miracles that they heard. And he said, I myself can do nothing. It is the Father within me who does these works. Now, that's the translation of the human being at that time with that level of understanding of what he was saying. I think he was saying this is a great power in the universe that his love is life itself. I, I can't say what Christ said. But, and he was saying, I myself can do nothing. It is this power within me. These things I do, ye shall do better, some translations say, and some translations say, you shall do bigger. Now look at what we have to do. We have to heal the ozone and purify the water and make sure we are supporting an ethical government. Um, and his last part was, don't rever me, follow my way, like Buddha. And I love what you said about struggle was the um, was the encouragement to have faith or something to that effect, where the teacher that I studied with for 20 years, she used to say, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the essence of things unseen. And I just think when we look at ourselves, we live in the middle of outer space right now, and we all have this fabulous experience, as Jack often says, look at our bodies, look at our eyes. Look at this fabulous place. You could have imagined it all. But it all manifests as us. Out of what? You know, faith and their sayings. Use it, you know. <coughs> Thank you. Another chat? Did you want to do some chin? Five more minutes. Okay. What about when your own deepest experience is doubt? Okay, the question was, what about when your own deepest experience is doubt, and why is it always called a hindrance? Um, there are a couple of different kinds of doubt that are talked about in the Buddhist tradition. Uh, one is a kind of skeptical doubt, which is a hindrance. And the other is, is a doubt that is more in the line of investigation and wondering and exploring and admitting we don't know and demanding to know the truth for ourselves based on feeling we have both the right and the ability to know the truth for ourselves. Um, that kind of doubt, if that's your deepest experience, I'd say it's a pretty good thing. You know, because that kind of doubt, and we often think conventionally in the West that doubt is the enemy of faith, you know, that it will destroy our faith, that we must not let it enter the citadel of our faith um, because it will overcome us. But that kind of doubt, which is that insistence on knowing the truth for ourselves, admitting we don't know, um, being in a state of investigation or wonderment, that will not destroy our faith. That actually will enhance our faith. The faith is that which connects us um, to the deepest, strength, deepest strengths we have inside and the deepest truths that we can rely on with one another. Then the real opposite of a faith is not doubt, it's despair, which is the complete... Um, uh, sundering of that sense of connection, you know, so that we feel totally alone and disconnected. That is the opposite of faith. Um, but doubt, that kind of doubt, where we're investigating, wondering, it's not. 
Um, the other kind of doubt, skeptical doubt, is more in the nature of, I think these days we'd call it probably cynicism, where we're not wondering and, and looking and, and coming close to an experience to find out what's true, but we're really standing apart. We're kind of aloof from it, probably because, or often because we're afraid. You know, we think we're really not going to find out. We don't know. And so we're not giving ourselves a chance. It's like that um, kind of desolate state of a child who is so convinced they won't get what they want that they have this posture of, well, I didn't want it anyway. I don't care. It's not worth it. You know, that kind of doubt or cynicism is the hindrance because we're not coming forward, we're not exploring, we're just stuck. And we're stuck at a distance. You know, kind of the classic example, very classic example of that is, um, you know, they say that the Buddha got enlightened sitting under a tree and then spent 49 days in the vicinity of the tree, uh, seven days doing walking meditation, seven days sweetly enough, gazing in gratitude at the tree for having sheltered him while he was meditating. Um, at the end of 49 days, he got up to walk to a nearby town to rejoin the, the ascetics he'd been with um, earlier. And the first person who came upon him as he was walking away was struck by his immense radiance and one can only imagine, you know, it's only 49 days after his great enlightenment. Um, so this man came up to him and said, who are you? You know, are you a human being? Are you a, a deva, a celestial being? Who are you? And the Buddha said, I'm an awakened one. And the, and the guy said, yeah, maybe. And he walked away. <laughs> you know, and it's like, the, yeah, maybe is not so bad. You know, that's okay. I mean, you don't need to be gullible and just, you know, believe something because someone is really shining or something, you know. But what if he hadn't walked away? You know, what if he'd stuck around and said, what do you mean you're an awakened one? You know, how do you get awakened? You know, and asked a few questions. And most essentially, if he'd actually put it into practice to see for himself not saying right off the bat, hey, yeah, this is, you know, this is the greatest thing in the world that's going to work, but see for yourself, you know, which is the essence of, of Buddhism. That would have been a different kind of doubt. You know, but that sort of walk-away doubt that doesn't let us try, doesn't, doesn't let us take a risk, doesn't let us put our hearts forward, you know, that is a hindrance. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> so again, thank you so much. Um, in the Buddhist uh, teachings about cause and effect, the Buddha says in very simple ways um, uh, that because that was, this is. Um, one thing leads to another. And as, as I was listening and so much enjoying kind of just listening to the teachings, I also realized that you are one of the causes for this all to be here. <laughs> so you should take <laughs> happiness in that great, um, great pleasure in that. And, um, 
Uh, we have just a couple of brief announcements, and then I'd like us to end with a chant and a little kind of blessing tonight. Um, one announcement is that Nancy, who's here, needs a ride to Berkeley. Is there anybody who can give a ride to the East Bay to someone? Um, why don't you and Nancy meet up here in the front, um, connect afterward? The second is that for those who uh, did know Tony um, and who would like to, there's going to be a circle of storytelling and friends of Tony that meet now after this uh, evening event is finished um, at Tony's home where he was staying in Woodacre where he lived, which is 228 Railroad Avenue. It's the home of Shockey Roth. And so if you go out of Spirit Rock and turn left on Railroad Avenue in Woodacre, you just go down about a half a mile and there's some Christmas lights on the road. Or maybe more freely translated means, I see you, I really see who you are, that light that you carry. Um, And that word namaste, the root of it in Sanskrit is the word namo that is also used to begin many of the great Buddhist texts. And it means to bow to or pay respects to. Um, And I'd like us to chant it tonight nine times. Um, And in your own heart, in your own way, you can bow to what feels worthy. Um, For those of us who knew Tony, to bow to him and to offer his spirit and his passing as much love as we might. For Diana Cushing, who is a woman that was injured in the accident, quite severely injured with him, and who's still in the hospital, hopefully getting better, your prayers and chant and bow. For the places in the world, the Middle East, and the so many other places that could benefit by a prayer, a bow of care and compassion, so forth. For those you love, those in difficulty, let us just chant together nine times and then go out into the autumn evening. Um, Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for your kind attention, your generosity, and for the spirit of community that's come from so many of you.
One more. And to Tony and Diana, to all of us and to the whole of the earth, may our practice bring blessings. And may your good heart shine this week. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.